in case this makes pre-roll, my mother has said that she doesn't like pre-roll because it feels like it's breaking the fourth wall, in which case, you know, hi, mom, love you. Welcome to The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Dara Lind. I'm here with Sarah Cliff and Vox Science reporter Brian Resnick, who's been on The Weeds before, talking about things that are very different from the things we're talking about today. In a week that's had a lot of things going on, something that maybe got less attention, weirdly, than it should have, uh, given the pace of news, was that earlier this week, the president's personal doctor from before he was president, Harold Bornstein, uh, a colorful a, man. A, a colorful character. I am not unconvinced <laughs> that this is not Eugene Levy in a wig from a Christopher Guest movie. But Harold Bornstein came back and, A, accused Trump associates of raiding his office and stealing President Trump's medical records a few months into his presidency back in 2017, and B, admitted that his famous letter from the campaign saying that Trump would be the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency had not been the result of a serious medical examination, what? but had been dictated by Donald Trump in 10 minutes sitting in the car with Dr. Bornstein. Between this and the revelations about Ronnie Jackson, who was the president's personal doctor after he was inaugurated, which, while they may not cast the same kind of aspersions, certainly raise questions about Jackson as someone who kissed up and kicked down and therefore may not have been totally honest with the president. It seems like we're now in a place where we we know that we don't know much about the health, physical and mental of the president. And I think that that kind of brings salience to an ongoing debate that's been happening about what we can and can't say about the president's mental health. So Brian has actually thought about this seriously as a beat reporter and has done some writing on what is called the Goldwater Rule, which might be familiar to some of you, but which I'm hoping Brian can kind of take us through this because this is a question that actual experts have been struggling with for several decades and pundits, I think, are coming to in a slightly naive way. So let's let's not be naive. Talk yeah. to us about this. Well, talk about like an evergreen topic, like ever since since the primaries, there have been columns and people talking about Donald Trump's mental health, a little less about his physical health. But this question of like his behavior, is it representative of uh, so many things have been thrown out, whether he has narcissistic personality disorder, whether he he's in uh, the early stages of dementia. These things have been an open conversation for I cannot remember the beginning of them. That. And so you're right, there's just a really fascinating conversation about how we should evaluate public figures and who gets to weigh in and, and why. So just to ground everyone here, the Goldwater Rule comes from the American Psychiatric Association. So this is the professional organization of psychiatrists, medical doctors. And the rule stems from uh, in the 60s, there was a magazine called Fact that sent out a survey to all of the American Psychiatric Association members. And they asked them, do you think Barry Goldwater, who is the Republican candidate for president, is fit to run the country? Were they asking this about... President Johnson, were they, like, was this was this spurred by anything in particular, or was it just like Barry Goldwater, maybe crazy? Let's find out. I, I think that's it. <laughs> I think so. Barry Goldwater was a 
presidential candidate and fact asks all these psychiatrists to weigh in. And okay, most of them didn't. And then the half that did weigh in said Barry Goldwater's fine. And then the other half fact well, it went a little off the rails. So they, I think they had a cover story that said like over a thousand psychiatrists say Barry Goldwater's not fit to be president. And they quoted these psychiatrists as saying all sorts of really outlandish things. Like there were a lot of comparisons to Hitler. There was like a uh, commentary on like latent homosexuality. There was like Barry Goldwater has never forgiven his father for being a Jew. It's like And all- they published these quotes yeah. in the magazine. Yes. What actually ended up happening Barry Goldwater successfully sued for libel and won, and the magazine doesn't exist anymore because of that. And it was really like, it was horrible journalistic ethics. They didn't really report like that most of the people that they sent this survey to either did not respond or said Barry Goldwater was of fine mental capacity. That this was- also seems like that seems like a level of rigor in psychiatry that isn't really where the profession is now, anyway, right? Like, I have a really hard time believing that a psychiatrist in any context is going to be like, oh, your real problem is that you've never forgiven your father for being a Jew. We're past that kind of Freudianism now, right? Yeah. That type of psychoanalysis still exists. I don't think it's necessarily the mainstream or it's certainly not the only option. There, there There are many other ways that people encounter therapy. But anyway, it kind of shows that even psychiatrists, doctors, you know, they have opinions. They can be a little fiery. They can be wrong. And they can use their degrees a little inappropriately. And so the American Psychiatric Association after that said, like, okay, our members, if you're a member, you cannot publicly comment on the mental health of people you have not evaluated or people you have not gotten the permission to to evaluate in public. And so just some clarifications, because I think some some things about this rule get a little misconstrued. The American Psychiatric Association, those are medical doctors, psychiatrists. The rule only applies to them. Like similar groups, like if you're a psychologist or a therapist or a social worker, you know, the, the, they a might journalist. have journalists. <laughs> right. uh, there, there might be separate sets of ethics for, for all these people. And a lot, of, um, a lot of these professions in mental health do overlap in what they do. So you might have heard from psychologists who have been on the air, or there actually have been a few psychiatrists uh, talking about Donald Trump. But also what happened last year, the APA also expanded their rule to – it's not only that a psychiatrist can't comment on the mental health of a public figure. They can't comment on the lack thereof. So they can't say Donald Trump does not have a psychiatric illness. It goes in both directions. And so like I said at the top here, like this, this debate over Donald Trump's mental health – has been lacking a very large group of people who know a lot about mental health. And I'm not sure like what they would enhance this conversation about because even people who do not have these ethics like debate this as well, um, whether you know we should be talking about the mental health of the president. And it seems like this election cycle, this, this has been all – this hasn't been a debate since Goldwater. Right. There's never been like a desire to like largely psychoanalyze – Barack Obama or declare him mentally ill. It, maybe there was and it was much smaller and I missed it. But I don't know, I'm curious, you spent a lot of time like thinking about this, like listening to the arguments of people who want to change these rules. I think kind of one of the leaders of that is Bandy Lee at Yale, who has testified before Congress, edited an entire book kind of related to this issue. I'm curious like how you think about like 
does the rule make sense to you? Like, how, how have you come away from, like, all these conversations you have about where this particular professional organization has has drawn this line? Yeah, so I, I wrote a piece that that basically summed up the rule, the Goldwater rule has never met a challenge like Donald Trump. So there are some interesting things that you can say are evidence against the rule. So one is that Donald Trump, there's so much to analyze from him. He tweets so much. Like there is like going back decades, there are news articles. Like we can see his behavior over time. Like there is a lot to analyze. And there are some people in psychiatry and psychology who feel that, you know, the personal one-on-one interview or the therapy session isn't necessarily the only useful bit of information. Usually like you go to other people to corroborate symptoms. Like the one-on-one therapy session is special, but it's not the only thing that factors into a diagnosis. So that's one thing that there's just so much to analyze and like it's kind of hard to ignore it. And then there's also like the free speech issue. So I talked to a psychiatrist who had an interesting take on this and she was telling me that she personally does not feel it's her place to talk about Donald Trump, but just doesn't like the implication that she could never. Um, So that's different too. And also, as we said before too, there are other structures in place to keep psychiatrists from really being like Fact Magazine was sued for libel and lost. (laughs) So like if you give a bad diagnosis of someone based off of nothing and based off of like just your your politics like and you're using your professional title like that sounds like a little bit like libel i don't know the entire laws there but like you know you are you're defaming someone with with like improper evidence so yeah though i think it's another characteristic of this administration that they you know, often threaten to sue and use litigation as, you know, I, yes. I like I would be a little bit wary of saying, oh, yeah, you know, litigation will provide a proper check on inappropriate uses of public speech. Yes, yes. So, so of course, whenever, you know, we're talking about Trump, there are like examples and then there's the Trump example. So that's. Uh, but the, so yeah. I wanted to go. I think that the, the unprecedentedness thing is huge and is something that we're probably going to continue to return to. But. I'm wondering if the psychiatrists and, you know, the psychologists who, like, do have the ability to speak publicly about this that you've talked to have have raised the Reagan example. Because it seems to me that, like, the one case between Goldwater and now where we know for sure that there were health issues that had an impact on the presidency is that we now know, thanks to – Reports that have come out after the fact, mostly, that Ronald Reagan was suffering from Alzheimer's when he was in the presidency and that there were a lot of people who had interacted with him in one-on-one settings who came away from it knowing that something was wrong. Yeah. And none of us were exactly politically aware during the Reagan years. Um, and I apologize. Or necessarily to, born. <laughs> or necessarily <laughs> born. And I apologize to listeners who just felt really old hearing that. But – do the people who you've talked to believe that if the Goldwater rule weren't in place, that there might have been more of a public dialogue about what was going on with Reagan at the time? Or is that an example of previous presidents haven't given us a window into their minds in the way that Trump has? Yeah. So what Reagan doesn't get brought up so much, although that's an interesting and important example. But what does get brought up a lot from people who like the Goldwater rule is that 
we shouldn't make mental illness or or other forms of cognitive decline a nest like an ultimate like you cannot be president if you have a mental illness or if you're suffering from a mood disorder or I don't know where to draw the line on like early stages of dementia and things like that. Like that's that's a harder question for to answer than whether this is something to be discussed or not. But yeah, so that's a huge concern. Like there are so many people who are effective and great at their jobs and have a diagnosis or are seeking therapy or seeking counseling. And a lot of the conversation about Donald Trump gets spoiled down to like, oh, he's just crazy. And that type of conversation is is stigmatizing and it's not necessarily fair if we're talking about the president in this way, we have to think about who else we might be referring to when we're talking about mental illness. So, yeah, the Reagan example, I haven't talked to people about specifically, but it's interesting and and it's hard to know where to draw the line and it's hard to know like where as a public we would want – like obviously you wouldn't necessarily want your, your president in the United States like declining mentally. But, you know, that ultimately is also a political question and, you know – we also have to think of all of our all of uh, the Congress who are you know of a certain age too, and you know I don't know if they really want to wade into this question as well. Yeah, I mean I think the thing that's tricky is how much to like draw because I think like you raise a good point. There are plenty of people who have some kind of mental health diagnosis that are doing wonderful jobs, but we generally don't vote for those people. Those people don't have the level of power. Like it is none of my business, you know, which of my coworkers have some kind of mental health diagnosis. It is just totally irrelevant to the work that I do here at Vox. But I'm curious if the presidency feels different at all to you. Like if there is some compelling reason we would want to have that information about a commander in chief or if it comes down to that's just, you know, stigma, it's not relevant. I mean, I, I could see, I haven't made up my mind on this at all, but I, I could see, you know, either of those being compelling Reasons that I do, like Dara was saying, it turns out we now know basically nothing about the mental or physical fitness of um, of the president after we've had medical records stolen and forged, and like Ronnie Jackson turns out to be quite, you know, all sorts of um, things and not always not quite a the reliable character witness. Not a, I think the is the I'm best way to put for. it. I, I guess I'm just. It seems like we've become pretty comfortable with the idea we should know some things about the physical checkup of a president. And and again, like, I should not know about anyone's physical diagnoses at Vox. Like, yeah. is the mental checkup part of that as well? So w- one point there is that, and I'm not an expert on this, but I'm pretty sure, like, throughout history, we have not had an accurate assessment. Like, we, the public, have not had an accurate assessment of president's health and mental well-being. So as I understand, like, you know, I, I feel like JFK had some 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 problems with um, with mood and, you know, there, there are histories about Abraham Lincoln being depressed. And, you know, these are things that don't, like, while we're in the, the moment, like we don't realize and then historians will tell us about it later. Um, So is there something different about the presidency where we need to know this stuff? And to that, I would say one problem, I think, with this public diagnosing of Trump is like the diagnoses are a little – all like we're not having a specific conversation about one thing. And I think that's a bit of a problem. Like I said before, like kind of this all gets boiled down to I think – 
Trump's a little dangerous, you know? Um, and so, like, different things have been thrown out, like, oh, narcissistic personality disorder or just, like, um, more recently, the, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists who are arguing um, to evaluate Trump, they're just saying, oh, he's just dangerous and we need to assess him further. They're calling for a more proper assessment. So... Another lesson from psychology I think is interesting here is the uh, psychology personality. So um, we can know a lot about a person without like having to assess them on some pathological scale. So, you know, if you watch people for a while, personality psychology teaches us people don't change a huge amount. You know, personality is a somewhat stable trait throughout your life. And your past actions predict your future actions. And your past actions predict how you're going to interact with people. So I think we could do like a really a good shift on this conversation to me would be like, let's stop talking about pathologizing Trump, because I'm not sure where that exactly leads us. And like, just recognize that we do have enough to know about his psyche, his behavior, his persona. There's, like I said before, so much out about him. And this is a big argument from people who are really against diagnosing Trump is that everyone has a personality and Trump certainly has one. And this is what I, I've been thinking a lot about, too, and, and, and a point that why is it that some people think just because you get some psychiatrists or some doctors in a lab coat saying, oh, Trump, this guy, have you have you seen what he's doing? Like, we should be concerned. Like, why is it that we assume or some people assume that it's the doctors who are going to, like, convince Republicans in Congress to do something about Trump? I just see that as such a blind spot. That's not going to be the final straw. It's like, oh, the, you know, the psychiatry is coming after Trump after all of this, after all, all of what we have, what we know about him. What we've seen of him and what we've, you know, we can map his behavior and personality pretty well. Like this lesson I keep coming back to when I when I report on psychology is that oftentimes the argument that we find most compelling is something that just makes us feel good and is not necessarily something that's going to be convincing to another person. So I'm not sure this Trump has a diagnosis of, of, of a mental illness is really going to convince anyone who already likes him. And this is also part of the Goldwater rule, too, is like the, the professional organization, they want anyone to feel comfortable going to a psychiatrist and not thinking like, oh, psychiatry is, you know, a bunch of liberal shills crying, uh, you know, something that I wrote in the, the recent piece, like, you know, Donald Trump complains of witch hunts, but arguably going after the unknowable configuration of his mind is more of a witch hunt than like actually assessing things he's said and done. So I think that, I mean, we could have an entire other thing about the like liberal fetishization of science and all of that. Um, but I think you've just laid out a really, really good case that's centered on how do we as the American public assess the president and who do we trust to help us do that. But I think there's also another level on which this is a relevant conversation that has to do with policy and our assessments of who has the power to make policy and what power what policies are getting made. I think that's something that I've had to struggle with that, Sarah, I suspect as another policy reporter you've probably also had to struggle with is 
a lot of the stuff that in previous White Houses I considered to be like palace intrigue reporting that was fun for people who were political junkies, but didn't actually, wasn't terribly important, didn't lend much to our understanding of what was actually happening, didn't affect people's lives. You know, the like who's in, who's out, who has the president's ear stuff. A lot of that actually turns out to matter a lot in the Trump administration, because who has the president's ear and what decisions is the president making that have a lot of impact on people's lives are inextricably connected. And we don't really have a good sense of what decisions will the president make that aren't related to, well, who has his ear right now? It's not like the president, you know, most politicians come into office as representatives of a particular coalition and what decisions they make can be predicted pretty readily by what does their coalition want. That's not the case with Trump. There does There is an element of personality-based or like individually-based decision-making that means that a lot of things that we might have been able to tune out in the past, we can't tune out anymore. And so I'm struggling with this, both because it's relevant to other political actors as well, like during the fight in Congress over immigration and DACA over, you know, late fall and, and winter of this past year, a lot of advocates, you know, including a lot of, of like, pro-immigration Republicans went into that going, great, we're going to show Trump that he can be a deal maker and that's how we're going to win him over. And that was a bad miscalculation because they thought that they had a direct line to Trump rather than he was being swayed by the people around him. So I think that they're, I think that understanding in this White House, how does the president make decisions and are there changes in that is super relevant. And I think especially in the case of like changes in office, whether we're talking about Reagan, whether we're talking about like Woodrow Wilson being basically mentally incapacitated at the end of his presidency and that having a massive impact on his relationships with Congress and like arguably the League of Nations didn't get approved by the U.S. because Woodrow Wilson wasn't, you know, in a position to make the case. That does seem like something that you know, it's not just a parlor game. There are actual people's lives at stake. I wonder, Sarah, if you have like a different perspective on this in terms of privacy rules more generally as someone who's done a lot of reporting based on medical records and like on the opaqueness of medical records, like does it seem different to you when knowing something that might be a privacy concern at the individual level can actually give us insight into policy? Yeah, I mean, I think I run into this all the time, particularly with the work I'm doing now, which really focuses on medical billing. And there certainly is this tension between privacy at the individual level and um, in greater, you know, understanding of how our medical system works that is constantly bumping into each other. So I run into this a lot with um, one particular law that goes by the acronym of HIPAA, or um, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, which is a law that essentially says that any healthcare providers, doctors, hospitals, they have certain responsibilities to protect your information, and that I cannot, like, go to a hospital in D.C. and be like, I would like Daryl Lind and Brian Resnick's medical records. They have to do a lot to safeguard those records or else they could get fined by the government, which, you know, on the individual level, like, I think it's great that no one can go to a hospital in D.C. and request my medical records. But on the other hand, when I'm, I'm doing a lot of reporting right now on emergency room pricing, and it makes it so – it's one of many factors that makes it very, very hard to get, like, a big – 
picture. And often I think is actually used as an excuse where I a lot of times hospitals respond to my email saying, oh, we can't tell you about that visit and then just say, like, it has to do with HIPAA. And then I'll say, well, I'll get a release signed. I'll get all this, you know, stuff done. Um, and it just becomes a fallback excuse that really stands in the way of me being able to really understand, like, what is happening in these medical encounters. And it is, you know, like I said, I think, I think it makes total sense that we passed this law in the mid-90s to give us more protection of our medical information. And it means that hospitals take this, like, seriously, that they could face pretty significant fines whenever there's like a data breach at a hospital that is very expensive for a hospital. So they do a decent amount to safeguard all this information. You know, at the same time, there are trade-offs to that. One of the weirdest trade-offs is fax machines are named in HIPAA as one of the safe ways to transmit data. Email is allowed. It's just not specifically named in the rule. But everyone just stuck with facts because it shows up in the HIPAA rule. And, like, so now if you, like, ever have to, like, I literally today have to find a way to, like, fax my pre-registration forms for having a baby. Like, they only accept them by fax or by mail. So I have to, like, fax to the hospital and then, like, call them to make sure the fax got there. There's um, a great episode of a podcast called The Impact yes. about this. <laughs> I'd like to learn more about fax machines and HIPAA. But anyways, to your point, Dara, I think it's a it's a— trade-off of policy, right? Like uh, how how secure do we want to keep information versus how much do we care about using that information to better understand big things in our country, like how our healthcare system works? Yeah. And, and for me, well, first of all, if I ever have the misfortune of going to a hospital, I will absolutely share everything with Sarah Cliff, <laughs> medical records, billing, Thanks, everything. So do not call 911 just so you can give Sarah <laughs> yeah, Cliff your emergency yeah, room just billing. just email Sarah Cliff. Uh, call 911 to your <laughs> yes, emergency. Yes. So my take on this and the whole like, you know, mental health, physical health debate about Trump is like, what information is relevant and important here? So what we're seeing now with that psychiatrist, Bandy Lee, and some other um some other of these public prominent um, mental health people, people in the mental health field talking about Trump is they're arguing that this matters, like we need to assess Trump. And I think some people are arguing for not like diagnosing him in public, but like getting a way to get him evaluated privately and, and, and you know, something to share with Congress or something like that. And they're arguing that that matters because he appears to them to be dangerous, that he has all this behavior, which is erratic and scary. But there's also another point of view where you can say like, okay, whatever's going on in his mind, whatever his like psychoses is, if, you know, we're using that word, what does that matter if we can see, or like what Dara was talking about, Dara was talking about how, you know, the palace intrigue stuff is actually really important in this administration. Like that's interesting and important because we know like this pattern of behavior where whoever has the president's ear seems to get their their policies or their ideas enacted or whoever seems to be on Fox and Friends in the morning seems to get the president's ear like that stuff is really important and maybe uh, the argument is like the psychological aspects of Trump or his physical health like are less important here um and that's a debate like I don't 
you know, have the complete answer to. But, you know, when Sarah was talking about like what things sometimes when things are private, they make reporting harder. They make knowing like the truth of like what's going on harder. Well, I think here we need to ask is like, is it really important to know the truth of like what's going on in Donald Trump's mind or in his, you know, coronary arteries and versus everything else, which I could argue like the focusing on his mental health and his and his physical health is a distraction from the everything else. But then I guess there's also that thing I was talking about before, like maybe I don't know, maybe uh, like a more medicalized assessment of him would be convincing to some people uh, to change their minds about Trump. But I, I kind of doubt that. So I feel like the strongest case that I've seen, and I say this as someone who is has been really skeptical of all of the armchair diagnosis work and really tries to stay away from it in my in my own public statements. And I think like I, I want us to talk about our roles as journalists here. And I think, Brian, you're beginning to get into that. But I, I just want to the strongest case I've seen for an assessment of Trump along these lines was an article that Stat News wrote earlier this year where they talked to a bunch of experts who analyze speech patterns um, and found that the you know, complexity of speech that Donald Trump engaged in five years ago was substantially higher than, you know, comments that he'd made as president and suggested that that might be evidence of cognitive decline. So this was, I think you're talking about Sharon Begley's article about Mm -hmm. a year ago in STAT, where she says, and I'll just kind of to give people context, STAT reviewed decades of Trump's on-air interviews and compared them to the Q&A session since his inauguration. The differences are striking and unmistakable. Research has shown that changes in speaking style can result from cognitive decline. Stat asked experts in neurolinguistics and cognitive assessment to compare Trump's speech from decades ago. They all agreed that there had to be a deterioration. Some of it said it could reflect changes in the health of Trump's brain. So that kind of seems to me to be a model of if you're going to do this publicly, here is a good way to do it, to like use the fact that there's a corpus of publicly available information and have people who actually know things rather than like, it would be very easy for me to, you know, listen to a Trump speech from 20 years ago and listen to one from yesterday and go, oh, yeah, I think there's something going on there. But like, it seems that that actually has the potential to add something to the debate is I don't know, like Brian is as a probably more expert consumer of science journalism per se than Mm -hmm. I am. Do you think that like, that was a less responsible thing than it seems on its face? So I I have conflicting thoughts on that. For one, it was like we were saying earlier, with Trump, things are a little different because we have so much information on him over decades, and you can do things like that. And we do know that changes in language sometimes do reflect changes in your mind. At the end of the day, too, like, what do you think is more damning? Evidence of Trump, like, having a cognitive decline or evidence that Trump doesn't like to read? You know, if Trump is or like evidence, he seems to be OK with assaulting women. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, like, I'm not saying like that report is bad. There, There is a line there where I don't know quite where I fall. Like, it does imply that Trump tr- Trump is is in cognitive decline. I don't, I don't remember exactly if she quite says it. I don't think she does. Uh, OK, so that's a hard case to make like that Trump. Trump is in cognitive decline because there could be all sorts of reasons why he's changing his speech patterns. Maybe he just finds like this type of scattershot style speaking like is like a it's like for his supporters like a Rorschach test. Like they can make whatever they want out of it and construct, you know. Uh, So 
I just find those lines of arguments to be I want to assess Trump as a somebody who is in charge of all his faculties. I want to I want to be able to say Trump's behavior is the result of his intentions and he is doing these things because he wants to do them and is not, you know, a fault of his mind. Like, uh, and, and when I say I want, like, I, this is just like an argument. Um, yeah. What would you rather be the case? Like if we're assessing Trump as journalists, you know, do we want to say that he's in cognitive decline or do we want to say like this person is willfully um, avoiding great information to, you know, to, to make his decisions? Do we want to say he's like making decisions on his personnel versus on like really arbitrary categories, like who looks good on TV versus like what they know, like, like those things to me, I would want that to be more important than whatever armchair assessment we can do from, from our desks here as journalists. (laughs) So I think this is really important because frankly, I, as a journalist think that all of the things you just mentioned are armchair assessments, right? Like, mm-hmm. I am more than happy to work off the reporting that, you know, there's so much great reporting coming out of, you know, this ridiculously fractious tea-spilling White House uh, from the Times, from the Post, from the Daily Beast. And I'm more than happy to use those that reporting to get a picture of who's pulling the levers of power in the White House. But— at the same time, I think that a lot of White House reporting does focus over much on personality and is willing to give credence to things like the president hires people because they look good on TV that are just theories. Like we don't actually – this isn't something that Trump has said. It's something that like we're using a couple of secondhand reports and you know our interpretation of public events to assess. And – I'm deeply ambivalent about this because it's not something that I feel it's appropriate for me to use my platform to say because I don't have any information that you guys as listeners don't have that any other member of the public, you know, like I don't, I've never talked to a White House advisor. Uh, I think that's true of most of us who are writing about, you know, the Trump administration, to be honest with you. But at the same time, I know that if that doesn't happen, what ends up being the case is that there are things that I – think of and believe that I don't feel comfortable writing. And I don't like that situation either. I really prefer feeling like if I know something to be true, I'm going to be, I'm willing to put it on paper. I'm willing to communicate it. My job is to communicate to the public the things that I see and know. And, you know, I don't love a world in which journalists are all going around and talking to each other about the mental state of the president. And then none of them are willing to write it down on paper. I guess are are we doing that though? Because I don't feel <laughs> maybe I'm left out of all these conversations. There is a line I really liked in a piece you wrote, Brian. Um, the piece of it we'll put in show notes is Donald Trump's fitness for office isn't a medical question. Where you write that focusing on tests and possible mental disorders or impairment is just a distraction from an uncomfortable truth. Trump is terrible at his job, and I think this kind of like speaks to what you were saying. Earlier, you know, even if we get away from things that are a little more speculative, like doesn't like to read, like there's still the fact we have things like the Hollywood access tape. Like we have a constant string and like you see this in your beat, Dara, of policies that just have nothing to do with the rhetoric of the Trump administration. I remember like January 
2017, you know, Trump is giving all these interviews about how he's going to come up with a health insurance plan that's going to cover everybody and that it's going to be great insurance coverage. And he said this again and again during the campaign. And I spent a lot of time talking to Trump voters who who believed that promise, who had Obamacare and voted for Trump because they thought he was going to bring something better. And then we just saw like an endorsement of like one plan after the other that got nowhere near um, near this promise that was being made. And I think it's the same like Oh, yeah. Oh, the number of times that I have either successfully told other members of our policy and politics team, no, this doesn't mean anything. Donald Trump just made some mouth noises or have had to write and publish on Vox.com. President Trump just made some mouth noises because like that's as much emphasis as I'm willing to give it because it doesn't have it. You know, sometimes the statements that the president makes do have implications for policy, but often we don't know about that until after the fact. And even within the White House, people don't appear to know about it until after the fact. Right. So and I think like, you know, you go through all these other questions one could ask about Trump. Like, is he respectful from other of others? Pointing out the grab him by the pussy tape. Does he reckon with the tough realities of policymaking? Does he make good use of the resources available to him? It seems like there's a... a there's a lot you can go on there that is completely separate from from this debate we're having about kind of mental yeah. fitness. Yeah, and I'd, I'd point out that I, I co-wrote that piece with my editor, Eliza Barclay. But how long has Donald Trump been the most prominent figure in our, our news feeds for? It's been, it's been some years now. Um, about three decades <laughs> about so, three I decades, Yeah. All those questions – I, I think are tangible and important and like with, you know, we, we've seen, you know, people in the New York Times and Washington Post, like they're, they're trying to answer those questions, like how Trump gets his information, oh, how is he making decisions? And there's, there's nothing scientific to answering those questions, unfortunately. We can't do like a peer-reviewed controlled study of Trump's, you know, decision making. That's, that's kind of outside of anyone's capabilities. So what do we have to talk about? And that's that's kind of like my sense is that the the conversation over Trump's mental health is kind of a oh oh my gosh all this other stuff uh, the grabbing by pussy tape the, the like there's just I can't even like there's so much it's like hard to remember all this stuff like I I feel like the the mental health is a stand-in for a lot of separate things. Or it could be a stand-in, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm not going to suppose how people think about Trump. But, yeah, it's kind of like a, okay, we, we've had all these other conversations about Trump and who he is and his past and his history and how he does things. Like, none of those seem to matter. Yeah, I think all of that is true. I also, though, think that the way that journalists as both as individuals and as people who talk to each other a bunch approach the administration really does have a lot to do with what their personal assessments are. And, you know, we all work at a site that no, that doesn't believe that the view from nowhere is possible, whereas some of our colleagues do. And I've always, you know, I think one of the problems with the view from nowhere is that you end up building your assumptions about what is a politically viable and, you know, within the acceptable realm of discourse question to ask into your reporting, but don't state it outright. You'd be very hard pressed to find a journalist who doesn't think that this White House lies on a regular basis. 
a lot of them aren't willing to use the word lie in their stories, some of them for like style guide reasons about intent, some of them just because they think that it's not their place to make that judgment, but they're making that judgment as individuals. And I worry about any world where your standard, our standards for like what we can ourselves believe as journalists are that inconsistent with what we can say publicly because it seems like that's where you get into, you know, either people being biased in favor of or against particular politicians for reasons they're not really declaring or a kind of like everybody knows mindset where journalists aren't necessarily willing to give new events or new statements the gravity that they deserve or the impact that they're going to have on the American public, on what other people feel comfortable saying privately, that kind of thing, because everybody knows that, you know, the White House lies all the time. Everybody knows that Donald Trump says racist things. There are lots of things like that where I don't want to have, I you know, I think that maybe mental health isn't even the most urgent question here. But my question is, should we maybe be working backwards? If all of these things about Donald Trump's mental health is not relevant to assess the character of Donald Trump, should that be something that as individuals we're telling ourselves, maybe I shouldn't be thinking this way. Maybe I need to be more skeptical and approach things differently rather than, oh, as a professional, I should make sure that I'm orienting my articles in a different way than I personally think about the world. Well, I don't have to confront this question too much because <laughs> I love covering science for this reason. In my journalism, I'm asking questions about things that people have tried to answer, and you know, with the best tools that they can they, that they can uh, gather and, and and gather scientific evidence, and you know, talk about those implications. So, um, but I think, um, like I was saying before. There is no like peer-reviewed scientific assessment of a president's behavior. Like you, you're going to have to rely on a lot of those gray areas, you know, if you're an opinion columnist or or you know somebody who wants to have that analytical take. But maybe just from the top, it's just like deciding about like what what questions about Trump matter and which don't. You know, this is outside of what I do, but if you're if you have a suspicion, you know, that idea of like, oh, everyone is thinking this, but no one is saying this, you know, you could probably report that out to a certain degree. I don't I don't really know. I, I mean, I, I feel like this is where there's a really weird information asymmetry, right? Because the people who have access to that kind of the, the people who would report out and everybody knows story are going to make their own jobs harder by doing it, whether they're you know, White House reporters whose whose ability to give us a window into the White House relies on them having reliable lines of information or media reporters who are going to get their colleagues in trouble if they talk about this thing that theoretically violates our professional code of ethics everybody is doing. So, you know, I think that we're actually in a position where we can be a little more transparent about how the sausage is getting made because none of us are like going to go back and get on the phone with people whose professions depend on it. But that also means that the very people who can be answering that question can't. It's kind of a flip position to the Goldwater rule in the APA. The experts who could be lending credence to, is this something everybody believes or not, are being gagged. And that's creating a vacuum where like people who don't necessarily know anything are coming mm. in and making pronouncements. 
But I don't think they're necessarily – like I think we've seen that they're not being gagged at all. Like one of the things you feel like there's like a revolt going on right now in psychiatry where I, I – it seems like there is a, a willingness to violate these rules. And like you wrote, the consequences for – has anyone like faced professional censure for doing so at this point? Or? I don't think so, although I haven't like checked okay. up on every single psychiatrist who, who, has, who has gone out um, in public. Um, I would say the, um, the consequences for violating the Goldwater rule is to be potentially booted out of the APA, the American Psychiatric Association. And that's not a medical licensing board. It's just a professional organization. Like they put out journals. They have conferences. It's I don't know. They probably have snacks sometimes. Who knows? Um, so, uh, I mean, as a clinical psychiatrist, you probably – it's probably really bad PR to be kicked out of like the main professional organization to which – you maybe should belong to, but it's not, you know, you can still, you can still practice medicine without it. The consequence is not dire. It's just like all these things we've been talking about, you know, like the questions facing psychiatrists are the questions facing psychologists, facing reporters, facing, you know, people who talk about Trump in the streets. Like, how much do we want to take the things that we know for sure that we read about in the news that we see from his tweets, that we that we analyze from all the things he does to people in this country and around the world? And how much do we want to extrapolate from that? And how much do we want to, to go from like, okay, Trump has done these things to, okay, what's my next What's my next – what's my conclusion to all that? Um, and, you know, tons of people have no problem concluding this man is not fit to be president. More – you know, there's also people who are using more hyperbolic terms. Um, and uh, like what – and this we were talking about before, but like what conclusion is – convincing or like what's like what are the points of those conclusions other than like one point of the conclusion just to make yourself feel good and say like oh yeah I think Trump's a nutcase like you know I've come to that assessment um, uh, that might feel good as a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a newscaster or you know just somebody talking about politics but I don't know yeah I just don't know what what we do with those conclusions, you know? So that's the question everyone faces. And the I mean, Gold, Goldwater rule is an interesting, like, focus point for it. But it really is just about, a, like, a small group of people. What I'm curious, like, what becomes of something like the Goldwater rule when, you know, academic psychiatrists have a way bigger chance of having their own platform than they might have, just like any of us have a much bigger chance of having their own platform. And, you know, one of the things, like, I see I cover a lot of health policy research academics is a lot more blogging, a lot more, you know, sharing a working paper that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet on Twitter. People start reacting, you know, and providing information that way that, you know, as there is this, like, space for academics to kind of share their views in, like, in, in venues that are not peer-reviewed journals, I think it's an interesting question of, like, how much, you know, the professional rules matter versus like how how this you know how academics communicate with um with the rest of the world changes or shifts as there's 
so many more ways and so many more channels for them to do it. Yeah. Something I really try to do with my reporting is that, okay, you can find somebody who's nominally an expert in something. Like you can find a psychiatrist or you can find a doctor. But I really want to know, I want to talk to people who have a reason to have a good answer for a question. Like I want to talk to the person like who did the meta-analysis on, you know, uh, I'm working on a story about pain right now. It's like, so whether this treatment for pain works, like there's so many doctors who might have an opinion on that, but I want to talk to like the person who's done some work to form that opinion. Um, so I, I think what you're getting at is like, yeah, anyone can use their their job title, their platform to like just talk about anything, you know. And and I'm not sure how many of those people you were referring to like lean on their qualifications to to make their arguments, you know, to things that maybe they haven't studied directly, maybe things they have. But yeah, no, I think it's more important to like assess like if somebody is giving an opinion, like a or like a public psychiatrist, public figure, public intellectual is giving an opinion, we still need to question like why did you come to that opinion and ask them like have you done work to convince me that that opinion is 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 I should be listening to you. Because I think something you saw with like that fact incident back in the 60s is like, yeah, you can get you can find a psychiatrist who will tell you anything. Like this happens in journalism all the time. Like, yeah, if you're on deadline, you can find some quote expert to tell you just, you know, to shoot the shit with you. Um, but that's less satisfying than, you know, finding people who who have reasons to know what they're talking about. And and, and unfortunately, I think what happens a lot, and this probably happens on cable news too, is just like the loudest people went out and not necessarily the people who deserve to be talking went out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I would even have a stronger formulation of, of what you're talking about because I think that often people who – often academics, when they're talking about politics or you know people who have reason to have platforms don't think about – and I mean, Kanye West is kind of the like – the Uber example of this, and I actually thought for a second we weren't going to get to Kanye, and we totally are. So many, so much of the dialogue that Kanye has engaged in in public over the last week has been Kanye just throwing things out because he thinks of himself as an individual, and people who know him coming into his DMs or texting him and saying, dude, you can't do this. You have a platform. You need to fact check your stuff. You have an obligation to read your history. The idea that you know, having a platform means you're going to be trusted by some people is hard for an individual who maybe wants to go through their own, you know, journey of ideological discovery to accept. But it is really important. And I think I can come up with off the top of my head, and I'm sure you guys can as well, like people who have prominent academic positions whose hot politics takes get taken more seriously because they have prominent academic positions, even though they don't have any particular insight into what they're talking about, or even if they're like sharing fake news, for example. So, you know, I I would love a world where people were much more cognizant of not just am I making sure that the things I am an expert in, I'm being very rigorous with myself about, but who is out there who's going to listen to anything I have to say more because of who I am? And do I need to rein that in a little bit? All of which is to say you should only listen to experts. You should only (laughs) listen to Vox Media Podcast Network podcasts. More seriously, I think it's a case to, to make sure that you're reading 
stuff about systems so that we don't get trapped in personalities, which means you should be reading, you know, Sarah's and Brian's excellent work on Vox.com. Uh, and Dara's excellent work on Vox.com. Nah, my work is trash. Uh, thanks so much to you guys for listening. Thanks to our episode producer, Bridget Armstrong, and our engineer, Griffin Tanner. And we will see you next week. Thank you.